Transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the desert. It's one of those summers like we always have now. It's just too hot. Let's do a Manhattan project to fix the damned climate. How about that? Just quietly get it done behind the scenes. Governments cannot do anything really today but enrich the defense contractors, so we will have to do it ourselves. You know what to do. More or less. We'll have a secret meeting. Keep your ears open. Meanwhile, encourage people to keep arguing about it. Pay them a few grand a month. Cover every angle. Keep them out of trouble. Off the streets. Out of sight. Keep them on Twitter. Some of them. Some on Twitter, some on whatever Facebook garbage product, some on AM radio weekday call-in shows. They still have those. And let's have somebody standing on the corner with a cardboard sign with a weird message with all the words spelled wrong. Let's just continue with the planned obsolescence and controlled demolition of the Tower of Babel. Does anybody know the story of the Tower of Babel anymore? Did anybody here go to Sunday school? Well, it's a real short story. It's... About the length of an Instagram caption, meaning four paragraphs of tiny text. Let's read it together so we can better understand the references that older people occasionally make in their newspaper op-ed columns. The Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If one people speaking the same language had begun to do this, 
then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because it was there that the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. A very short story. That's literally all there is to it. And it makes no sense, really. First of all, who is the Lord talking to? Let's go down, etc. Who is the Lord complaining to? Well, when the Tower of Babel story was first making the rounds, there were many gods. Each area had a god. Some gods were truly everywhere, like Pallas of Troy, who was also Athena and Minerva and Sullus and etc. Minerva is with us still, of course. And her Catholic guys, she's the Virgin Mary. They even share the same magnificent basilica in Rome, the Basilica of St. Mary of Minerva. But most goddesses and gods were associated with a particular tribe, a certain town, a Bronze Age empire, etc., And what was the God of Abraham doing in Shinar anyway? Not his jurisdiction. Well, here it gets extra confusing on purpose, as if Bible readers were scattered to the four winds, confused by everything. The Lord in those earlier parts of Genesis is a different God than the one who starts playing with Abram and Sarah like a couple of Barbie dolls in the back shed, do you know what I mean? It's such a weird story. It's like that White Lotus show with more incest. Sarah is Abram's sister, but also his wife. Why not? You've only got one Barbie and one Ken. But then you've also got a pharaoh doll for some reason. Maybe from the Disney cartoon. So Yul Brenner looks at the Sarah Barbie and says, Baby, you know I got a harem back at the palace, and let's get you out of those dusty cowpoke clothes and dress you up like a belly dancer. Sarah says, Well, and Abram says, Go ahead, she's only my sister. And then he sort of mutters under his breath, And my wife. This comes a little later when the new lord, who is not the L of the Shinar Desert River Plain, but a character concerned specifically with Abram and Sarah, and specifically with their private life, or lives, tells them to get out of Anatolia and head south towards Egypt. Especially considering that the protagonists of the next thousand chapters or so, Abram Abraham and his sister wife, Sarah Sarai, left a big city in Shinar, the city of Ur, on that same Mesopotamian plain, which the British renamed Iraq for some reason after World War I, 
When Abram and Sarah left at least a century after the Lord supposedly emptied the cities of the plain, discrepancies in the timeline, every continuity editor's nightmare. But at least we have a reference for what's going on today, the rapid breakdown of all these global communication networks and systems and streamers built over the past half century or so. Nothing works, everything is broken, all the knowledge workers are being shown the virtual door, etc. So we will return to the exciting NC-17 story of Sarah and her cuck husband, slash brother. We will return to this in a future broadcast. In the meantime, please read the next 20 chapters of Genesis. I promise they are very short chapters. None of this infinite jest nonsense. And there's a way forward, I think, that is presented in this story. Between the incest and the slavery and the concubines and the human sacrifice and the fantastic wealth and the warlords slaughtering anything that moves. It's already happening, of course. The way forward. The big sad real estate news for billionaires this year is that nobody wants to be locked up within massive windowless towers all day long and businesses also don't want to pay for workers so the commercial real estate towers of San Francisco and New York City and every other overbuilt skyline on earth are emptying out by the hour many are already completely vacant like Abram and Sarah people are quitting the cities and heading for the countryside in the suburbs, of course, mostly to the suburbs, if they can afford it. But the interesting people are going to abandoned farming villages, tiny backwoods towns. And we are forming new societies within these out-of-the-way places. We welcome the UPS strike, the movie strikes, the TV strikes, the end of content, and the end of Amazon Prime. Because we will have our own little shops, our locally grown food, etc. A story for another night. A story we are making up right now. You and me. I remember hearing my dad talk about the irrigation canals in Phoenix on the south side of Phoenix where he lived from the age of five till he lied about his age and joined the Air Force at 16. Those canals were life in the pre-air conditioning days for the cotton pickers. In the summertime, the kids were always in the water. And sometimes they'd find ancient Indian pottery from the civilization that built those canals and then scattered and died.
When the kids got older, they'd water ski in those canals by tying a rope to the trailer hitch on whatever jalopy was around and dragging another kid on skis. You could get up to 40 miles per hour when the dirt road alongside the canal was nice and smooth. My dad's half-brother, my half-uncle, I suppose, drowned in one of those canals when he was just a toddler. Anyway, if you live in Phoenix today, you might want to get your exit plans in order. If Palos Verde ever goes offline, you're going to melt. You want to get up someplace higher, around 7,000 feet. Los Alamos is nice at an elevation of 7,320 feet. It gets real cold up there in wintertime, but you'll get used to it. Plus, it's still sunny and beautiful even in the winter. But the real estate is not cheap. You don't want to end up like Bob Lazar with a high school diploma and collection agencies always on your tail, renting some worn-out little dump and developing vacation photos for the well-off scientist at the government lab. I want to tell you about a very interesting American character who had his formative experiences in the high desert mountains of Los Alamos, New Mexico. Maybe you've heard of him, heard about how he was a communist and the child of privilege and eventually became a household name in the mid-20th century. I'm speaking of Gore Vidal, of course. A blood relative and family relation of Al Gore and stepbrother to Jackie Kennedy through one of his parents' later marriages. Gore Vidal was enrolled at the Los Alamos Ranch School for Boys in 1940. He went on to write some of the greatest novels of the 20th century, including the strange and hilarious Burr about Aaron Burr and what's-his-name Hamilton, which should have been the basis for a big Broadway musical had it been written by somebody smarter. But you're probably thinking of another child of privilege who was forever affected by his time riding horses and camping out under the clear, cold desert skies of Los Alamos and the big, beautiful country surrounding that little ranch. I'm speaking of William S. Burroughs, of course, who, along with Gore Vidal, would become notorious for his piercing and shocking and poetic satire of America. But by way of introduction, we will first deal with another American character, one named J. Robert Oppenheimer. And if you want more on that subject... Consult Desert Oracle issue number three from the autumn of 2015 or the paperback book Desert Oracle Volume 1, the latter being available at all your favorite independent desert bookshops. As the Second World War infected the Old World and most of Europe's great physicists collected in the United States... Many of them began to suffer nightmare visions of a new weapon that would make 
Germany unstoppable. Washington, the celebrated scientist insisted, must build the atomic bomb first. Much of the authority for this Manhattan project fell to J. Robert Oppenheimer, a suspected communist and wealthy New York-born scientist who adventured to New Mexico like so many others, other elites, I mean, for the fashionable dry air cure at a guest ranch in 1922. Oppenheimer's affliction was not tuberculosis, the then incurable illness that once brought thousands of lungers to New Mexico, but dysentery likely caused by infectious colitis. The disease kept him bedridden for what was supposed to be his first year at Harvard, so Oppenheimer was taken to New Mexico. His father, Julius, was a wealthy industrialist and collector of modern art. And it was Julius Oppenheimer who proposed the New Mexico trip, believing that, quote, a Western adventure would help to harden his son. According to Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin's 2006 biography, American Prometheus. As part of this frontier adventure, the 18-year-old Oppenheimer rode from the guest ranch near Cowles to the stark slope of the Pajarito Plateau and across the Great Caldera. Beyond the old cave dwellings and Pueblo, the only permanent settlement was the rough-hewn all-male Los Alamos Ranch School with its prep school cowboys doing ranch chores between classical studies. The junior Oppenheimer was so taken with the brilliant landscape, the cowboy life, and the arid climate that he later leased and eventually bought the little ranch near Cowles for himself. And when the need arose for a remote location for America's World War II effort to build the A-bomb... Oppenheimer suggested that part of New Mexico he loved best, the mountains north of Santa Fe. After all, his twin obsessions in life were, quote, physics and desert country. Or, as he wrote in another letter, my two great loves are physics and New Mexico. Oppenheimer was also a mystic which was not uncommon amongst the East Coast Americans drawn to New Mexico in the early 20th century. While his agile mind maneuvered easily through physics both hard and theoretical, there remained a gauze at the frontiers that baffled him. He studied Sanskrit and took to the ancient Hindu texts, a deep interest that merged with his profession years later following the successful detonation of the first atomic bomb on July 16, 1945, Trinity. It was two decades later when Oppenheimer, abandoned by his government and near death, recalled his thoughts about the A-bomb for NBC television cameras. We knew the world would not be the same, he said. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. 
I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and, to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. In that ancient story, the human prince, Arjuna, accepts his responsibility to fight a war even though he feels that the war is unjust. He is convinced that his profession requires his full participation. Oppenheimer was not suggesting that he had become death, the destroyer of worlds. Although it sounds good. Instead, his earthly profession required him to be the war god's proxy. It was Oppenheimer's duty, and because it was his duty, he did not regret the eight bombs destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Oppenheimer's choice for the Manhattan Project's laboratory site, quickly accepted by the U.S. government, was that same picturesque private school he had visited on a horseback camping trip years earlier. Set along a creek crowded with Fremont's cottonwoods, Los Alamos in Spanish, on the mesa east of the volcano and west of the Sangre de Cristo mountain range. The climate and views would inspire the great minds called to this duty, he believed. The final graduating class of the Los Alamos Ranch School rushed to complete their studies by February of 1943. The school had been created by a Detroit businessman named Ashley Pond, who had served in Theodore Roosevelt's Rough Riders but missed the war thanks to a case of typhoid. The ranch school's mission was to toughen up the sons of the American elite. Pond believed in the gender segregation that some Pueblos practiced to create elite warriors. They didn't even want the male teachers to have wives. The ranch school graduated a number of notable business and artistic figures, including the aforementioned Gore Vidal and John Crosby, founding director of the Santa Fe Opera. But the strangest and most brilliant of them all was a boy called Billy Burroughs, grandson of the man who invented the adding machine. William S. Burroughs was born to a wealthy St. Louis family, and despite a lifetime at odds with the morals and social order of America's prim elite, his lasting persona was that of a corny old-time Western gentleman. Whether founding the Beats with Kerouac and Ginsburg, portraying a priestly old heroin addict and Gus Van Sant's drugstore cowboy, or creating shotgun art with a disheveled Kurt Cobain, Burroughs dressed like an undertaker in a rumpled suit, not dapper but shady. Burroughs' writing is packed with studied paranoia regarding government, technology, weapons, taboos, and especially the virus of language, which Burroughs believed was the result of deliberate infection by alien management. It was a reversal of the Tower of Babel story. The gods did not confuse our language. The gods infected us with language. They destroyed the magical, natural world we once roamed. After stints with his brother Mortimer in 1925 and 27, 
16-year-old Burroughs was sent to the school as a full-time student in 1930, in part because he suffered sinus problems. Most of the boys there were spindly, sent by rich fathers, hoping the desert would toughen them up. Burroughs begged to come home late in his second year and later wrote that he loathed the ranch school's dull chores, cruel classmates, and a headmaster who privately enjoyed making the teen boys strip naked and prance around for him. But in William S. Burroughs' fiction, especially in his later novels such as The Wild Boys and The Place of Dead Roads, a fantastic version of this Old West-themed all-male school of horseback-riding junior cowboys is the Burroughsian ideal of a perfect society, out of doors and out of control's reach. It is the Los Alamos Ranch School before the A-bomb, the cowboy adolescence without the teachers, without the military men who took over the school, and without the scientists seeking moral justification for bringing the world to the verge of man-made destruction. Burroughs, who was interested enough in anthropology to briefly study the science at Harvard, enjoyed roaming around the Pueblo ruins and cave dwellings. Ted Morgan describes one such ramble in the book Literary Outlaw, The Life and Times of William S. Burroughs. Quote, Roger Scudder, a St. Louis friend who went to the ranch school with Billy, also remembers him as wry and sardonic with a macabre side. He and Billy used to go dig in an old Pueblo Indian ruin. Billy found an anthill in the ruin and poured gasoline over it and lit it and started dancing a sort of parody of an Indian war dance with maniacal whooping as ants by the thousands fled the pyre. Young Billy Burroughs knew about the war captains. He knew about the gods infecting the humans for purposes of war duty. Yet even when he volunteered for the military and then the OSS, he was unable to perform. Burroughs attended two of the same elite universities as J. Robert Oppenheimer, too. Harvard and Columbia, the latter campus, in New York being the original headquarters of the Manhattan Project. They studied many of the same esoteric Eastern texts in their comfortable Cambridge lodgings. But unlike the war captains of the Pueblos and unlike Oppenheimer... Burroughs could not do the duty of the gods. Not the war gods, anyway. His job, as it transpired, was to turn the atomic age into the darkest comedy, and satire so outrageous and relentlessly belittling that the 1960s generation would see these pillars of American government and commerce as little more than lunatics born to money and power. You've been listening to Desert Oracle Radio. Find out more if you must by visiting desertoracle.com Soundscapes by Red Blue Black Silver Good night from the voice of the desert. Desert